Chapter 30 of Fighting the Flames. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Cantos Evenstar. Fighting the Flames by R. M. Ballantine. Chapter 30. There were other men besides Mr. Tippet who could be true to their promises when it suited them. D. Gorman was true to his, in so far as it concerned David Boone. He visited that unfortunate invalid so frequently, and brought him so many little nice things for the alleviation of his sufferings, and exhibited altogether such nervous anxiety about his recovery, that the worthy Mrs. Craw was quite overwhelmed, and said in the fullness of her heart that she never did see a kinder friend, or one who more flatly gave the lie direct to his looks, which she was bound to admit were not prepossessing. But despite his friend's solicitude, and his doctor's prescriptions, and his nurse's kindness, David Boone continued steadily to sink, until at last the doctor gave it as his opinion that he would not recover. One afternoon, soon after the expression of this opinion, Gorman called on his friend, and was shown as usual into his chamber. It was a wet, cold, stormy afternoon, and the window rattled violently in his frame. Boone was much better that afternoon. It seemed as if he had just waited for the doctor to pronounce his unfavorable opinion in order to have the satisfaction of contradicting it. "'He's better today, sir,' said Mrs. Craw in a whisper. "'Better!' exclaimed Gorman with a look of surprise. "'I'm glad to hear that. Very glad.' He looked as if he were very sorry, but then, as Mrs. Craw said, his looks belied him. "'He's asleep now, sir,' the doctor said. "'If he slept, he was on no account to be waked up. "'So I'll leave you to sit by him, sir, till he wakes, "'and please be as quiet as you can.' "'Mrs. Crawl left the room on tiptoe, "'and Gorman went to the bedside "'and looked at the sick man's wasted features with a frown. "'Ha, you're asleep, are you, and not to be waked up, eh? "'Come, I'll arouse you.' "'He shook him violently by the shoulder, "'and Boone awoke with a start and a groan. "'Hope I didn't disturb your Boone,' said his friend in a quiet voice. "'I came to inquire for you.' Boone started up in his bed and stared wildly at some object which appeared to be at the foot of the bed. Gorman stared too and turned pale as his eyes followed those of the invalid. "'What is it you see, Boone?' "'There, there!' he whispered hoarsely, clutching Gorman's arm as if for protection. "'Look, I heard his voice just now. Oh, save me from that man. He, he wants to kill me.' "'Come, David,' said Gorman soothingly. "'It's only a fancy. There's nobody there. Nobody in the room but me.' "'And who are you?' inquired the sick man, falling back exhausted, while he gazed vacantly at his friend. "'Don't you know me, David?' "'Never mind. Shut your eyes and try to sleep. It'll be time for you to take your physic soon.' "'Physic!' cried Boone, starting up in alarm, and again clutching Gorman's arm. "'You won't let him give it me, will you? Oh, say you won't. Promise to give it me yourself.' Gorman promised, and a very slight but peculiar smile turned up the corners of his mouth as he did so. Boone again sank back on the pillow, and Gorman sat down on a chair beside him. His villainous features worked convulsively, for in his heart he was meditating a terrible deed. That moment he had been visited by a Ned Hooper, who in the most drunken of voices told him, "'If that was impossible to get a body for love of money, sure if he wanted one he'd better cut his own throat.' His plans having miscarried in this matter, Gorman now meditated to take another and more decided step. He looked at the sick man, and seeing how feeble he was, his fingers twitched as if with a desire to strangle him. So strong was the feeling upon him that he passed his fingers nervously about his own throat, as if to ascertain the formation of it and the precise locality of the windpipe. Then his hand had dropped to his side, and he sat still again, while Boone rolled his poor head from side to side and moaned softly. Evening drew on apace, and the shadows in the sick room gradually became deeper and deeper, until nothing could be seen as distinctly. 
Still, Gorman sat there with his features pale as death and his fingers moving nervously, and still the sick man lay and rolled his head from side to side on the pillow. Once or twice, Gorman rose abruptly, but he has often sat down again without doing anything. Suddenly, a ray of bright light shot through the window. Gorman started and drew back in alarm. He was only a lamplighter who had lighted one of the street lamps, and the ray which he had thus sent into the sick chamber passed over the bed. It did not disturb Boone, for the curtains were between him and it, but it disturbed Gorman, for it fell on the chimney piece and illuminated a group of vials, one of which was half full of a black liquid, was labeled poison. Gorman started up, and this time did not sit down, but with a trembling step moved toward the fireplace. He stretched out his hand to grasp the bottle, and almost overturned it, for just at the moment his own figure intercepted the ray of light, and threw the spot where it stood into deep shadow. "'What's that?' asked Boone. "'It's only me,' said Gorman, "'getting your physic. I almost upset it in the dark. Here now, drink it off. I can't find the cup, but you can take it out of the bottle.' "'You won't let him come near me when you give it, will you?' asked Boone anxiously. "'No, no, come, open your mouth.' Boone hesitated to do so, but Gorman used a little force. His hands were steady now, his heart was steeled to the deed, and the cry which Boone was about to utter was choked by the liquid flowing down his throat. Gorman had flung him back with such violence that he lay stunned. While the murderer replaced the bottle on the chimney-piece and hurried to the door, a gentle knock at it arrested him, but his indecision was momentary. He opened the door softly, and going out said to Mrs. Craw in a whisper, He's sleeping now. I found it hard to get him to give up talking, for he waked up soon after I went in. But he's all right now. I suppose the medicine is beginning to operate. He told me he took it himself just before I came in. Took it himself, exclaimed Mrs. Craw. Impossible. Well, I don't know, but he's better now. I would let him rest a while if I were you. Stay, sir. I'll go fetch the lights, said Mrs. Craw. Never mind. I know the stairwell, said Gorman hurriedly. Don't mind the light. I shan't want it. He was right. If any man ever wanted darkness rather than light, thick, heavy, impenetrable darkness, it was D. Gorman at that time. Took it himself, repeated Mrs. Craw, in unabated surprise as she closed the street door. It's impossible. He's in no more strength than an unborn infant. I must go and see to this. Lighting a candle, she went softly to the sick chamber and looked at the invalid, who was apparently asleep, but breathing heavenly. She then went to the chimney-piece and began to examine the vials there. My! she exclaimed suddenly with a look of alarm. If he ain't been and drunk up all the tincture of rhubarb, and the laudanum bottle standing close beside it, too, what a mercy he didn't drink that. Well, lucky for him there wasn't much in it, for an overdose of anything in his state would be serious. Full of her discovery, Mrs. Cross set the candle on the table, and sat down by the chair by the bedside to think about it. But the more she thought about it, the more puzzled she was. Took it himself, she said, reverting to Gorman's words, impossible. She continued to shake her head and mutter, impossible, for some time, while she stared at the candle as if she expected that it would solve the mystery. Then she got up and examined the bedclothes, and found that they had a great deal of the rhubarb had been spilt on the sheets, and that a good deal more of it had been spilt on Boone's chin and his chest, after which her aspect changed considerably, as, setting down the candle, she resumed her seat and said, took himself, impossible. Darkness. If ever man sought darkness in vain and found light, bright, blazing light everywhere, it was Gorman. At first, in a burst of frenzy, he rushed away at full speed. It was well for him that the wind had increased to a hurricane, and the wind was blinding, else he had been stopped on suspicion. So fierce and was his mane, so haggard his looks, so wild his face. Gradually his pace slackened, and gradually, as well as naturally, he gravitated to his old familiar haunts. But go where he would, there was light everywhere, except within his own breast. It was all darkness there. It is true the sky was dark enough, for the war of the elements was so great that it seemed to have been blotted out with ink. The shops appeared to have been lit up more brilliantly than usual, 
Every lamp poured out a flood of light around it. The lanterns of the cabs and omnibuses sent rich beams of light through the air, and the air itself, laden as it was with moisture, absorbed a portion of light and invested everything with a halo. Light, light, all around, and the light of conscience within, rendering the darkness there visible, and shining on the letters of a word written in dark red, Murderer. Gorman tried to extinguish the light, but it was a fire that would not be put out. He cursed the shop windows and the lamps for shining so brightly on him. He cursed the few people whose curiosity induced them to pause and look back at him, and he cursed himself for being such a fool. On reaching the Cheapside, he began to recover his self-possession, and to walk in the storm as other men did, but in proportion as his composure returned, the enormity of his crime became more apparent to him, and the word written in red letters became so bright that he felt as if ever passer-by might read it, unless he dropped his eyes to prevent their seeing through them into his soul. At London Bridge, he became nervously apprehensive. Each unusually quick footstep startled him. Every policeman was carefully avoided, and any one approaching it to a shout behind him caused him to start into an involuntary run. Despite his utmost efforts to control himself, the strong man was unmanned. A child could have made him fly. He was about to cross London Bridge when he observed a policeman taking shelter under the parapet and apparently watching those who passed him. Gorman could not make up his mind to go on, so he turned aside and descended the nearest stairs. The policeman had doubtless been waiting for someone, or suspected Gorman, because of his undecided movements, for he followed him. The latter observed this and quickened his pace. The instant he was hidden from his pursuer, he darted away at full speed and did not halt until he stood at the foot of one of the stairs, where wherries were usually to be found. The sight that met his gaze there might have overawed the most reckless of men. A hurricane was raging, such as is not often experienced in our favorite island. The wind blew not in gusts and squalls, but in a continuous roar, lashing the Thames into crested waves, tearing ships from their moorings and dashing them against other ships, which likewise were carried away and swept downward with the tide. Dozens of barges were sunk, and the shrieks of their crews were heard sometimes rising above the storm. The gale was at its height when Gorman came into full view of the Thames. A waterman, who was crouching for shelter in the angle of a warehouse, observed him and came forward. "'An awful night, sir,' he said. "'Yes,' answered Gorman curtly. He started as he spoke, for he heard, or he fancied he heard, a shout behind him. "'Isn't that your boat?' said he. "'It is,' replied the waterman in surprise. "'You don't want to go in the water on such a night, do you?' "'Yes, I do,' said Gorman, trembling in every limb. "'Come, jump in and shove off.' At that moment a policeman came running down toward them. "'Are you mad?' exclaimed the man, grasping Gorman by the arm as he sprang toward the boat. In a moment, Gorman struck him to the ground, and leaping to the boat, pushed off. Just as the policeman came up, he was whirled instantly away. Grasping one of the oars, he was just in time to prevent the boat being dashed against one of the wooden piers of the wharf. He was desperate now. Shipping both oars, he pulled madly out into the stream. But in a few moments, he was swept against the port bow of a large vessel, against the stem of which the water was curling, as if a ship had been breasting the Atlantic waves before a stiff breeze. One effort Gorman made to avoid the collision, then he leaped up and, just as the boat sp struck, sprang at the forechains. He caught them and held on, but his hold was not firm. The next moment he was rolling along the vessel's side, tearing it with his nails, in a vain attempt to grasp the smooth hull. He struck against the bow of the vessel immediately behind and was swept under it. Rising to the surface, he uttered a wild shriek and attempted to stem the current. He was a powerful swimmer, and despair lent him energy to buffet the waves for a short time. But he was again swept away by the irresistible tide, and had almost given up hope of being saved when his forehead was grazed by a rope which hung from a vessel's side. 
Seizing this, he held on, and with much difficulty succeeded in gaining the vessel's deck. With his safety, Gorman's fear of being captured returned. He hid himself behind some lumber, and while well, in this position, wrung out some water of his clothes. In a few minutes, he summoned courage to look about him, and discovered that the vessel was connected with one that was laid next to it by a plank. No one appeared to be moving, and it was so dark that he could not see more than five yards in front of him. To pass from one vessel to the other was the work of a few seconds. Finding that the second vessel laid moored to the quay, he sprang from it with all his might and alighted safely on the shore. From the position of the shipping, he knew that he stood on the south bank of the river, having been swept right across the Thames, so he had now no further difficulty in hiding his guilty head in his own home. End of chapter 30 Recording by Cantos Evenstar